Welcome to something new. Welcome to the first ever episode of Not Just For Kids Movie Club, our Patreon channel with exclusive content for all you lucky listeners that have signed up for it. My name is Russell and I'm your host. I'm a father of two and someone who loves films. And this is the podcast that covers both of those. You'll be aware of this by now, but Not Just For Kids looks at family films throughout the ages. We've covered in our run the likes of Steven Spielberg and all the films he's directed and produced in the 70s, 80s and 90s. We've covered the 10 years of Western animation that went from Toy Story and the birth of Pixar all the way to the death of 2D animation with Home on the Range. And we're just about to kick off our next season, which covers everything to do with Studio Ghibli, one of my favourite animation studios ever. Perhaps I think a lot of people who have seen their work will agree their work is phenomenal. And so I thought we could do with maybe just a few more episodes, maybe something that covered... Uh, more franchises or covered stuff that I'm probably not going to get to on the main podcast feed. And so that's why we've launched this new channel. And it begins with a season diving into the numerous screen versions of Batman, who is perhaps my favourite superhero. So we go from the delightful 60s camp of Adam West through gothic Tim Burton films, uh, Nolan's grounded, sort of realistic, sort of not Batman, all the way to Batfleck and Snyder. And we'll be discussing all of those different versions across the next few months. A warning, this is being mostly recorded in lockdown and so any audio issues are because of these circumstances. But you know what? Why don't we just get started? Why don't we get this party started? I want you to do me a favour. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. So joining us today is the fabulous writer and podcaster, Louise Blaine. Hi Louise, thanks for coming on. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm all right. How have you been in this uh, strange time? It has been a strange time, hasn't it? I'm actually, I was really, really excited today because in Scotland, Nicola has just sort of let us out a little bit. Well, she's set dates to let us out. So I found out for the first time when my hairdresser sent me an Instagram message going, <laughs> oh my God, we have a date. And I was like, well, I need a hair appointment right now. Um, so yes, I'm very, I'm now very pleased, but it has been it's been a long old year, Russell. It's been yeah, a long, it's been a long old year. Strange few months. I, I have uh, a child at school, so I've juggled homeschooling and oh, work. And so I'm in quite a happy place right now because she's back at school and I can just do Good. the work at yeah. home and and not have to uh, teach. It was I was teaching her maths and that was a strain because <laughs> yes. my maths is 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 just okay. And then she needs people she needs people of her own age to be able to interact with and there was only so many whole reason schools exist it's the whole reason schools exist it's because we're not all built to be maths teachers at the same time as doing our (laughs) our work yeah i have have so much admiration for for teachers right now i have all this respect for teachers and i don't want to have to do this again yeah (laughs) so tell us a bit about what you do so i followed your work for a bit you do some fabulous work but tell us all what you get up to on your day-to-day Uh, I'm a games and technology journalist with a bonus sprinkling of horror movies. So uh, I started my career a long time ago on as a staff writer, an official PlayStation magazine. And since then, I've been writing, tweeting, videoing, various things. And last year, I actually went freelance uh, entirely. But before that, I was working for on the Logitech G YouTube channel. So I was covering games editorially, but also working for the BBC. I do a weekly 
K Adams slot called Tech Talk, where I talk about consumer tech and do some writing for T3, various other places. Uh, and I'm quite fortunate at the moment to have a Radio 3 show called Sound of Gaming, um, where I go on a journey through uh, video game music. So that's currently what I do. I'm very fortunate to kind of have my finger in many entertainment pies. But you might have also heard me on The Evolution of Horror talking to Mike a lot about my favourite horror films. So that's fun too. Yeah, you're you're really insightful in what you know about games and films. And it's always really uh, interesting to hear what you have to say. Um, what's your your favourite soundtracks? What was your, say, top two gaming soundtracks, if you have oh, them? Well, or is that too big a question to oh, ask? No, no. So I, I really love the Assassin. I love the Assassin's Creed franchise. It's totally my franchise. Like tonight, I was so excited to go on because they gave out an all-tie-year skin for Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which I went straight to um, one of the highest points on the Valhalla map so that I could take pictures of all-tie-year. Uh, well, my Ivor in an all-tie-year outfit with Scotland in the background, because that's beyond Hadrian's Wall, which might be the closest we'll ever get to an Assassin's Creed Scotland game, but who knows. So my best soundtracks are all of the Assassin's Creed franchise, because they're so... Literally, I think that was what made me fall back in love with gaming. You know, I had a... I had a PS1 when I was growing up and a PS2, but then there was a couple of years where I wasn't playing until I bought a PS3. My brother handed me Assassin's Creed 2 and said, you need to play this. And it just opened my eyes again to what games could be. And it was suddenly this wonderful world of Florence and Venice and Forley and Tuscany. And I think what came with that then was Jesper Kidd's Assassin's Creed score, which is wonderful and really strange. And because it's a Renaissance Italy setting, it's interesting, so it's got that timelessness to it, but because Assassin's Creed uses the Animus and it's digital, it has kind of synthy, digital, mystical elements to it too. So that's definitely sort of, I'm going to say the whole Assassin's Creed franchise at number one. <laughs> um, and then I guess number two, what have I been listening to? Um, gosh, well, what we're about to talk about today, the Batman score is amazing. It's great. Um, but I'm trying to think, what have I been listening to that's been wonderful? Uh, do you know what I love just now, which I will put in at number two, is Gareth Coker's scores for Ori and the Will of the Wisps and Ori and the Blind Forest, because they're wonderful and they make me, oh, but then there's The Witcher. It's, got, it's all very close, <laughs> Russell, but um, I, think, I think game soundtracks are really special in the fact that so many people associate them with when they're playing, but it's lovely as well, because it means that when you listen to them outside or you're that's the fun thing as well as being out and listening to the Skyrim soundtrack or going for a walk or bringing these things with you so I think game soundtracks can be listened to independently and you can take them on your own adventures so I think that's that's what's really exciting about them yeah I um I definitely have songs that I associate associate with Bioshock because those yes. are the games I've replayed a number of times and they always hear sort of songs of the era and it, it kind of triggers me back to where it is and then I played The Last of Us Part Two last year, which is probably the last game that I went all the way through and mm. and music felt very important to that game. And and obviously you have the guitar in that and and it yeah, I just yeah, there's a really interesting relationship with music and games and yeah, your show's great, by the way. I really like your sounds again. Oh. It's a really, really fun show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's it's really fun to be able to just on Radio 3 as well. You know, when Radio 3 got in yeah. touch and said, hey, do you want a show? It's like, yes, <laughs> but also what is my Radio 3 voice? <laughs> Can I have a Radio 3 voice? But yeah, it was it was really fun and I feel really lucky. And I think a lot of people, I think we all share this love of games, but also of having someone get to recognise it on a radio station. Is yeah, really, it, it's, it definitely feels that games are 
becoming more recognized and totally in my lifetime they've gone from being stuff that you associate with teenagers and and look down on, and then you get sweeping epic games like the assassin's creed series like the witcher like and we get into the batman series that yeah. came out in the last couple of years uh yeah games are definitely bigger now and more appreciated uh, they are so this podcast is not about games it's about films and it's about the films that we all grew up with so that could be the family the films you're true family or the films that you probably shouldn't have watched so stuff like evil yes. dead might pop up or terminator or any number of films like that so what films did you grow up with what are the films that influenced you and my answer for this is always the same and it's jaws jurassic park and batman returns because two of those i have been obsessed with my entire life and one of them gave me recurring nightmares about sharks for five years so <laughs> those films have influenced me to no end so what are your films like that? Uh, well, I agree with you completely on Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park fascinated me from when I saw it, when I, gosh, my mum took me to see Jurassic Park and she did that PG thing where she went first. She actually went to check it was okay and then was like, maybe a bit scary, <laughs> but still took me. And I, I, I think having a long running obsession with horror ever since I was a child, I used to read ghost stories and things. I think Jurassic Park is just that perfect combination of monster and scary and adventure and excitement and John Williams and yeah I, I loved that and I think a little bit going a little bit older I watched Scream far too early mm -hmm. and sneaked into Scream 2 in the cinema when it came out which was funnily enough I think I think when I was 12 <laughs> because I think Scream came out in 96 and Scream 2 came out in 97 and these and are I, super violent films. These are I they're really violent films. And yeah. I bought a t in fact, I bought a ticket for Titanic because I love Titanic as well. I bought a ticket for Titanic, and because the way the cinema was, it had like two corridors, and you only needed to get your ticket checked at one side, so you could sneak into <laughs> any of the other movies. So we, me and two or three of my friends, bought tickets for Titanic and sneaked into the very front row for Scream 2, which is funnily enough where Jada Pinkett Smith meets her demise <laughs> in Scream 2. And I think, you know, I, we just, we thought it was the best thing in the world. So yeah, so seeing horror films too young, but also sort of appreciating Jurassic Park. I mean, obviously Jurassic Park is, is a phenomenal choice and the Scream films are, I think a lot of horror fans, it's an entry point, particularly of our age, that we'll watch films like Scream and they will be an entry point into our lifelong love of horror because i mean i love horror horror is if if i didn't talk about family films i talk about horror so yeah, yeah but there's a, there's a thin line sometimes there's a very thin line you know you like there's there's really scary family films that shouldn't be family films really yeah like i, I watched um return to oz for the first time last year and that the is Wheelers. utterly terrifying <laughs> and and i have etched in my brain the first 10 minutes of the witches from the 90s and uh, the the child and the painting and i really what i watched the new one which is well half of it and stopped because oh you stopped oh <laughs> it's just it's not the same it doesn't have that same weird energy of the the 90s one and that's what i craved yeah. and i just didn't really have it in this one i'll finish it at some point but yeah. i just was like no i'll watch something else instead I can't do uh, it. I've looked at it on, now it's got cheaper on Premiere and I'm like, nope, nope, still can't. I think very, it's on Now TV. Very, now, it's, it's on Now TV, but it's very yeah. CGI and it's very, 
it's just not scary. It's not a scary film. And I think The Witches needs to be scary in an odd film. And I yeah. think it needs to terrify children in the first half and then elate them in the second half because children win yeah. in the end. But yeah, it's it's not worth your time. Okay, I will. I will just stay. I'll stay away from it because that was one of the most fun evolution of horror episodes that Mike and I did. Was talking about the witches. That was just the most fun. Mike's impressions of them was were interesting. <laughs> uh, so today I've got you on to talk about all things Batman. So I'm doing a series that goes through all the screened versions of Batman, and some of them are family films, some of them are not. But it's a hero that is so influential to me that that's why I'm doing this series. So. I've got you on to talk about everything to do with Batman. We'll go through all the different films in a light way. We, we won't have to go into much detail, sure. but we'll just talk about how the representation of Batman has changed and evolved, particularly from the 80s onwards, how it's, each director seems to bring a different flavour to who Batman is. Uh, so I'll give a little bit of information for the one person listening who hasn't watched Batman, and then we'll get into talking about Batman. Persuade you to take a sandwich with you, sir. I'll get drive through. So, Batman debuted in Detective Comics in 1939. He was a creation of Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And the basic setup is that it's an orphan billionaire playboy who has a pretty big secret in that he dresses up at night as a giant bat and beats up the criminal underbelly of Gotham City. It's kind of his way of dealing with the loss of his parents as a small child. And from this point, there's been numerous games, TV shows and uh, films. And those films have ranged from Oscar winning box office giants to uh, some much derided near franchise killing failures. And so there's been some highs and some lows. Uh, before we get into specifics, are you a fan of Batman? I'm a massive Batman fan. I've been a huge Batman fan for years, actually. I think there's I think there's quite a natural... Um affinity with the sort of the darkness of that actually linking to horror i think there's a real like i am the knight all the broodiness all the gargoyles i think um batman as a as a hero really appeals to certain sensibilities i think at one point i almost got a batman tattoo and talked myself out of it like you and i are talking on zoom and there's a lot of comics behind me up there and there's a lot of batman comics up there i love batman yeah there's been a lot of um i appreciate batman in many many of his forms because i really I really like the idea you don't have any of the, uh, even the problems that come with a Superman type character, someone with all of the, all of the powers. I think Batman is really attractive because yes, he has impossible gadgets, but he's essentially, he's human and has all of the flaws that come with being human. And a cape. Everyone loves a cape, swishy cape. Yeah, he feels uh, an approachably flawed character for us to rally behind so I read comics as a teenager and definitely I was drawn to a couple of Batman ones in particular the long Halloween for example is a story that I I yeah. was devoted to and I I find a really fascinating character which is why obviously we're talking about him why do you think he isn't endured and because he's been reinvented so many times whereas there are other heroes who have faded in popularity or have one singular uh, representation. He's probably alongside Bond, the only real character we've had who's managed to be reinvented every five or six years into a, a slightly different version of himself. Why do you think he has uh, endured? I think he's essentially consistently attractive as a 
as a, as a hero. I think there's something that that sort of the reason that I like him is because he's human and also I think of all of the heroes everyone I think there's a darkness that people really like about that because you're looking at you know you if you watch something like the Avengers it's all very bright and yes there's sort of added human sadness but I think the the Batman has usually been seen as the sort of in the sort of recent especially in graphic novels the serious hero and can tell adult stories and adult stories that you feel involved in um but i also think that people really enjoy the visual aspect of batman too i think people find it very very appealing i think if people and also his villains batman would be nothing without his villains and i think that's really important the fact that when you think about batman you think about the joker you think about the penguin you think about these iconic villains who are gloriously evil and i think batman would be pretty boring on his own nobody likes just the batman part of the story he's this he's this he's that hard wall you know and everything else comes across so i think that's why he's so attractive is that it's not just him yes he's cool and gothic and everyone goes through their batman phase but i think people like those real nasty villains that he can fight against who feel like they can do anything um obviously the, the killing joke etc i don't I have very different feelings on the Killing Joke as I did when I read them when I was much read it when I was much younger. I have very different ideas about feminine victims, um, but I think knowing that all of that is sort of bubbling away is is um, is why he endures. Yeah, and, and you bring up the villains, and he does have these this incredible roster of villains that can survive various situations. So, for example, we've had. Uh, Bane as as a Joel Schumacher sidekick and then completely reinvented by Christopher Nolan into Tom Hardy's quite fabulous turn as Bane and even with one of the um, funnest voice choices that I've had he still is this imposing brooding figure in the film and he's sort of physically intimidating presence so you're right in that the villains are a lot of why I guess Batman is such an appeal and and definitely uh, when they were approaching the Tim Burton films, Michael Keaton saw his role as not the most interesting role in his own film. It was that he was playing off of these much more lavish villains. And so, yeah, the villainy is why I love these films. Yeah. He, and But also I think, I think it's okay for us to have like the appeal of Batman is inherently good because he doesn't kill people. And I think we all like to think that's quite attractive, that vengeance, he's still trying to do justice. I think that's also quite attractive in a sort of popcorn nice way where he's not just, you know, the Punisher, <laughs> because he so easily could be, especially in Gotham. Gotham's totally its own character. I think that's where the appeal comes from as well. Gotham is this lavish, gothic, horrific, scummy place. I've always thought like, what would it like be like to live in Gotham? What do the what do the regular people do? Like, what are they reading in the newspapers? Why haven't they left? Like, why are they not living in Metropolis or somewhere between? But I think that's where it's got all these really these elements that all make up Batman's world. It's like a little snow globe of darkness, and I think that's why it's so appealing. And your point about him being complicated because he has these, he is a good person and he has morals and he won't break his golden rule of not killing in most versions and he could be the punisher and and i think the reason why he appeals to me more is is exactly that is that 
uh, he will not kill and he because he could easily use all of his weapons and all of his knowledge and end a fight very quickly but he chooses not to and, and that's Talks really it. interesting and it fits nicely it's a struggle um shall we dive into the films and just briefly chat about all the versions that have been yeah and we'll uh we'll say if we like or not and we can do some slight spoilers i'm um, gonna do episodes on most of these so we don't need to go into great detail, but you can say what you think about them. Um, so obviously there is the 60s version, which is Adam West and it's high camp. And uh, it's been much parodied in in so many films and TV shows going forward. It's been a uh, source of some humor. I, I wondered if you'd watched much of the Adam West years and what you thought about uh, th that version. You know, I've not watched massive amounts of it. I've seen various cartoony bits. I've seen, but while it is really, it is really easy to satirize and mock. I actually think there's something really sweet and attractive about it because it looks like the colorful versions of the comics. You know, it those before Robin and Batman got all armored up and before they got nipples and the nipples got removed and all of these things. It was just two dudes in in terrible leggings and shorts and i think there's something very scooby-doo appealing about that i think i think people can should look on it very fondly as this is how back when you know superheroes were in not incorrectly but put in a certain sort of they were put in a pigeonhole and that's what superheroes were and i think it's an i think it's a nice cuddly place to see where superheroes now are because you know we're about to go on a journey where we go from adam west to ben affleck hitting a tire with a sledgehammer in batman versus superman i mean and i know out of those which one i'd actually rather see you know and i think i think it's i think it's sweet yeah i i find them very endearing i've seen the the film the film is very endearing and I feel nostalgic for them because they're so removed from where Batman has gone since. And the closest you get is the Joel Schumacher ones. And, and this is a more successful way of doing the camp version of Batman that is etched in our culture. And, and Adam West's performance is, is iconic. And there's so much about this that is iconic and warm and endearing. And then obviously things changed a bit and we went off into the world of Tim Burton and we got some 80s gothic uh, with Michael Keaton as Batman and Jack Nicholson as Joker. And then later on, Danny DeVito as Penguin and um, Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. So, I mean, th that's where I was, uh, I guess, first introduced to Batman. So I watched those films when I was three or four, shown them by my dad. And looking back, that is far too young to be watching the... That's intense. <laughs> yeah, I was just, yeah, I, I, I think the intensity of them washed over me and the fact that they're kind of dark but camp and gothic and colorful and and it, i just i got a bit obsessed with them particularly batman returns batman returns is is this film that i return to all the time and and yeah so those are my batmans from my childhood how do you feel about them i watched batman returns before i saw the first batman and i i, I don't think i even saw them that young i certainly didn't see them as young as you I think I, I saw them, I think I, I, I seem to remember seeing them at a friend's house in the wrong order. But I, ad now especially, I adore those movies. I love Michelle Pfeiffer. Cat, her Catwoman is 
unbelievable as a performance. Uh, the Penguin, like Danny DeVito is incredible. I know Keaton is fine. I don't, I don't really feel any particular nastiness or anything towards him. But I think those films are made out of the other characters and the sheer Burton-esque visuals of it all. It's just an Elfman score. It's all just, it's Danny Elfman's score. I didn't just make that It up. is, yeah, no, he, he is. Um, yeah, and it, it just, it all feels so Nightmare Before Christmas made into a superhero movie. And I think that aesthetic is just, you could just drink that aesthetic. It's just a wonderful aesthetic. And I think it's funny. It's actually quite scary all the penguin stuff I find really quite unnerving. So, for example, in the the first Batman, there's that sequence where Jack Nicholson in the shadows is is being revealed as Joker and is is breaking down and and laughing his way through. And that's pure 30s universal monster magic going on there. And then also the wonderfully grotesque Danny DeVito as Penguin and. And that is my favourite villain in any comic book movie because he's so wonderfully, upsettingly grotesque. And every time I watch him, I see slightly more of how horrifying he is. And it's such a committed turn from him. But yet yeah, there's definitely so much horror being gently put into these Batman films. Yeah, I think sometimes maybe when you when you see them... I think they get scarier as you get older as well, especially what you were saying about the grotesque nature of Danny DeVito's character. He is awful and repeatedly just gets worse. Um, so I think that's another the attractive thing of it's just constantly upping the villain ante where you're just like, I don't, I just want to watch how he deals with these awful, awful villains. <laughs> um, are you a fan of, of Tim Burton's work as director? Is he, is he a director you... How do you feel about his work over his career? Yeah, I loved Tim Burton. I mean, Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow was the first legal 15 that I saw in the cinema. Um, and I think, I I mean, I still really love Sleepy Hollow, actually, just because I love that story. But I love his style. Um, he became very, it's Tim Burton directing Tim Burton, you know. But I think when I was, um, when I was a teenager, I loved his the books of I want like the little girl with pins in her eyes like all of those I loved all those drawings all this sort of twisted stuff I love the fact that he has this dark heart because he was drawing cells for the fox and the hound and just got really really bored of it and decided to draw things like Jack Skellington and Nightmare Before Christmas that's one of my formative that's absolutely one of my formative movies is that because it's musical it's Tim Burton it's full of skeletons it's got a glorious heart which i think the best horror has is the a glorious heart um and it, it doesn't mind scaring you as long as it takes you home and looks after you at the end and i think tim burton's very very good at that and i liked his um i even i even liked his willy wonka and the, the chocolate factory charlie and chocolate factory because i do not like the original Char willy wonka and the chocolate factory i like tim burton's remake more don't at me <laughs> i haven't liked it until I so I, I have never liked Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory until I watched it this time with my daughter and I was fine with it watching films with children tends to help them be more yes. endearing but so what is it about Willy Wonka that you don't like so I don't like it because I've never liked it since I was wee because it was something that I've now learned to enjoy um is that it wasn't like the book 
because in the film, Charlie and Grandpa Joe go into the bubble room and they float up. And that is exactly, exactly why everyone else in the factory is a bad child, because they don't listen. They go and do their own thing. They try and steal the squirrels or eat the gum or go up the pipe or all of those things. Charlie is the good boy who doesn't do those things. So literally, when that happened, what was the point? Why did that need to happen? We didn't need art. We didn't need tension. We didn't need cinematic tension. I do like the weirdness. As I've got older, I like the weirdness of the Oompa Loompas and the songs and, and, and the performances. But initially, I completely rejected it because it, it wasn't like the book. And now I understand the premise of the purpose of artistic license. But at the time... I wasn't into artistic license. I was like, that didn't happen. I don't like it. <laughs> and that's and that's why I like the new one because Willy Wonka is weird and strange. And now I find it strange because he's a lot like Michael Jackson and it's just even stranger. I mean, it would but, be strange now because it's Johnny Depp playing a version of Michael Jackson and both of yes, those just, are so problematic. And yeah, it's just layers of problems. I don't know how to like approach a, that <laughs> right now. Some kind of dead, awful cake that we should just put away in a pit. <laughs> Just layers upon layers of horrific uh, no <laughs> from tim burton who made his two and the second one was it, it made money but it was um a much complained about film because these films existed to sell toys and and the utter strangeness of batman returns doesn't really sell toys and and there were a lot of complaints yeah. so the studio as it often does in this story pivoted and went for Joel Schumacher and we got Batman Forever and Batman and Robin and I've rewatched both and they're really interesting films what do you think of them so Batman and Robin can get in the sea but I love Batman Forever I am a wholehearted supporter of Batman Forever. I love the nonsense of going to the circus. I love Nicole Kidman as Dr. Chase Meridian. I love Jim Carrey's performance and Tommy Lee. They just, everyone looks like they're just having an absolute whale of a time, constantly. And I think it's infectious, really, really infectious. And I think, um, do you know, I think it actually, it's their passion for destruction is up there in a more cartoony way with Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight because they want to destroy everything. And even if it's in a really cartoony, stupid way where at some point, they, like they throw grenades in a circus at one point or something silly. But then there's also the stupid bit, yeah, where they wrestle over like some weird green hat thing. But I, I think it's, I think it's for Batman in that particular mold of silly cartoon neon colour I think it really works. I think I'm, I wouldn't even put it into guilty pleasure territory. I'll just put it in pleasure territory. And yeah, it's um, I'm, it surprises me how much I'm quite happy to rewatch that film. Why do you think that Batman Forever works, whereas Batman and Robin, <laughs> let's say it doesn't work? It doesn't work, does it? <laughs> it was it was a very strange two hours rewatching it recently, and you kind of block out all the really odd things like the lingering early shots of the bat suits buttocks and nipples and then the yep. batman credit card and the the quite odd performances and and even trying to find arnie endearing in it was a struggle because yeah so i i, I wondered if it was 
so I kind of see them as as this transition from the Tim Burton that's gothic and strange and and doesn't re- really sell toys well in the second one to them attempting some kind of revisit to the 60s in Batman and Robin and the reason why Batman Forever works is because it's that transition so it still has some of the darkness so it's still got uh, our villains invading Bruce Wayne's mansion and blowing up all his stuff it's still got Robin's parents and family being killed in front of him uh, but it also is is high camp and there's Jim Carrey doing Jim Carrey's thing and it's it's much bigger and more 90s in its uh, approach to things and, and maybe that's why uh, Batman Robin doesn't work because it having rewatched it doesn't work no I think I do you know I also like Val Kilmer's Batman I don't like I, I, I find him quite endearing as Batman so then switching him up for nipples on a bat suit I think you're quite I think you're quite right about the fact that it embraces everything that is about the 90s everything that is good about the 90s and getting someone like Jim Carrey who was at a really gurning part of his career so was really properly completely over the top and perfect for that and then just to fill it full of it was almost like they didn't understand actually why people quite liked Batman Forever and they decided just to fill it full of characters and everyone was awful Poison Ivy was terrible I mean if you think about it Arnie terrible and Uma Thurman's a great actress and George Clooney in The White Stuff is a great actor and uh, Alicia Stevenson has been great in some really odd films recently and yeah, yeah so... I love Alicia Silverstone. She's amazing, and and she just got, had she just come off Clueless at the time. Uh, yeah, it was it was a, it was around that era because if you look at her career, it just sort of drops after this film, and now she pops up in things like The Lodge and uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. So she's had a sort of new career since making these odd films. But yeah, it it, it was she was the height of her uh, Clueless fame, and then it ended because. I hate the idea of Batman ending her career as a successful actress. That just makes me really sad because everyone else went on. Uma Thurman went on. George Clooney became George Clooney, even though at one point he had nipples on a suit. And also even the aesthetic decision of someone's like, how are we going to make this different? How are we going to spice it up? Nipples. Nipples will do it. That's fine. Everyone will love that. <laughs> so no, no to nipples on the Batsuit. And so this almost killed Batman. It almost killed off um batman and there were several attempts to make a new batman so wolfgang peterson almost made a batman versus superman back in the day darren Arfronsky almost made a batman year one and then nothing really happened until christopher nolan came along and for his third film made batman begins which i watched again today and there's definitely a part of my growing up with batman that these films are etched onto because uh, I mean I worked in a cinema during the release of The Dark Knight and would go in and do screen checks for the opening heist and for the bit where they transition Harvey Dent through the streets just so mm-hmm. I could see the lorry flip because every time I wanted to see that lorry flip because it's still one of my favorite practical effects and yeah so uh, uh, how do you feel about the transition from bat nipples to ultra realism this is how everything was uh, created and made and a massive tank of a car and all these other elements there's i mean i love i largely love the christopher nolan batman movies i mean i love that first one like i love the dark knight i funnily enough i really 
properly adored them when they unreleased. I just loved them, loved them, just couldn't get enough of them. I watch them now and I struggle with his bat voice. <laughs> Honestly, I do struggle with his bat voice because it, it was an unnecessary bat voice amidst what is just beautifully shot, great performances, incredibly written, proper high drama, thriller stuff. And it made a man dressed as a bat thrilling and exciting but never ridiculous and because it always set it in such a realism it set it in such a place of reality but it didn't at the no expense of laughs you know there's the does the does it come in black that's one of my favorite lines in fact I live by that line going by most of my wardrobe but you know it's the all of that was just the most wonderful concoction of of Christopher Nolan's directorial brain really just being very clear about what he wanted Batman to be. I do think, unfortunately, I don't like the third film as much. I don't think... Um, I think it starts really well with the same idea of risk, with the destruction of that stadium, but then I don't... All the backbreaking and the Bane and like Catwoman and none of it... I wish it all worked perfectly for me, but there's just too many plot holes. There's just too many plot bits. And the idea of... And it's it's it makes me really sad because I love those first two movies so much, but then having some kind of weird contrivance of police being underground for months and all being ready to come out in full clean suit jacket and clean suit, suit um, shirts, it that movie just didn't work for me. And I, I'd never I've rewatched it a couple of times, but I I've had to force myself to because I I don't enjoy it, especially now. It's and that's to me I suppose that's my. Batman and Robin of the modern of the modern Nolan world simply because it I think maybe it airs too far into the camp and doesn't quite get that right mix of reality that it should have I think that the first two films one is is this really interesting way to approach creating a modern hero and the mm -hmm. second is this is this really sprawling crime epic with a guy dressed as a bat and a guy dressed as a clown in the middle of it. And it has real stakes and real impact. And the third, the third I'm on board for up until uh, the stadium scene and the stadium scene happens. Yep. And uh, I, I, I'm really on board because it creates these really interesting characters and it, it returns to this world with a broken Batman and it does all this really interesting work. And then the second half becomes, uh, it almost speeds through these moments, almost speeding through to get to the end and and it's it's always when bruce wayne is able to travel from the pities in across continents with no money passport anything like that and get back into a locked down city to turn up and it's and while i enjoy the second half of the dark knight rises it doesn't have that kind of it just is petering out for me it's just this series petering out which is a shame because yeah. the first two are really great and i rewatch them fairly often at least sort of once a year and they're really interesting to see how they approach their two different tasks which is to create a hero and then to put that hero into a crime thriller and make it make sense especially i think you're right about those moments those moments of which there are many in the Dark Knight Rise, there are so many that are just like endless da -da 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 -da, huge moments but actually in the Dark Knight those moments would be a whole movie because that's a, that's a that's a movie that runs on its themes. The sort of really interesting character of the the fall of Harvey Dent, 
is one of my favourite things because the whole you live to see yourself die, you die the hero or live yourself to see you become the villain is one of the most it's almost thematic for that whole movie just off those what that one line it, it genuinely explores all of those things and i think there's now kind of an extra sort of bagginess actually in the dark knight with the i think the fairy sequence for me is one test too many of batman it's still it's not bad in any way but i think it's it's a little elongated now the then the, every time i see it the more unnecessary that scene is because we've already seen who the joker is and we're about to see who harvey is yeah, and I, I think yeah, I agree. I think it it peaks with the hospital sequence because totally. we see the interaction between Harvey Dent and the Joker, and the Joker has this big resounding conclusion. And then it has another forty five minutes, and it it feels at that point that it's tapping into issues of specifically of its time, and because uh, I I rewatched it last year in the brief window when we had cinemas back open, and and it is that for me that that moment is speaking to early noughties and all the concerns around the war on terror and all what that meant all of our surveillance and that feels almost quaint for me now because we've moved on to talking about other things and and we don't focus on that so it, it feels of of the Nolan films that feels the most of its time the mm. the other two feel Batman Begins feels like it's it's responding to what came before and then the dark knight rises i actually think my i think a lot of my concern with the dark knight rises comes from the fact that it's trying to grapple with the fact that the the most interesting character can't return from the dark knight because of the tragic loss of heath ledger means that it is the right choice to not have minute and to not have anyone even attempt to come near to that performance but it never quite finds the the way to fill that hole in the film yeah he's the elephant in the room really that they can't that they so no matter how many supporting extra characters they put in including sort of scarecrow it, it still doesn't you can't just switch him out you're right he's not a, he's not a, he's not a replaceable character in any way yeah and, and it feels like the dark knight is is in itself setting themselves up to recur and to be as they are in the comics and the games and I, I guess what Snyder was attempt, what they were attempting the Snyderverse um, to make them these, the yin and yang, the two that recur and meet up constantly. Uh, and speaking of Snyder, we should talk about the last iteration, <laughs> which is, uh, so we got Ben Affleck as Batman in Batman vs Superman in Suicide Squad for about 10 minutes. And... Yep in justice league and justice league will be interesting because so we're recording this two days is it two days before it comes out two days before the the four hour version of justice league comes out so i i have so i don't hate the ben affleck version of batman but i don't love the films he's in and i find batman versus superman so i rewatched it recently and it's just too much there's too much trying to be shoved into a two hour and 20 minute film. And Justice League is its own problematic thing now. How do you feel about Batfleck and Zack Snyder and, and all of the grim dark that we got in the 2010s? I know what you mean about not disliking Ben Affleck's Batman, because Ben Affleck is a good actor. 
with um, gravitas. Um, but that's really my extent of liking this Batman, who is has his face squeezed into a really weird cowl. It looks really odd. He looks very strange. I think he looks... Why have they ruined Ben Affleck's face by squishing it? It's very, it's really strange. I, I, have never understood the choices, even design-wise, of of Batfleck's costume, and I don't like the grim darkness because I like grim darkness, but I don't think Batman versus Superman or Batman in Justice League or Batman in Suicide Squad. I think these are all intrinsically mostly terrible films because every time I go and see them I think I'll like them like I like Wonder Woman I liked Aquaman these are independent characters that I like I'm sure at some point I will manage to brave the Snyder Cut and really enjoy Cyborg's character because from what I can gather from the reviews he's the one that's actually got a character full story and who's actually built as a story but I can't I don't feel like I don't feel like they're Batman movies, not really. I feel like I feel like he's there to sell lunchboxes again. I just don't I'm just not into it in the slightest. And I wish I was because it's a it's, these movies are very, very expensive and they have really, really good actors in them. And as such, in my eyes, that all usually means it feels like a waste. Because if you throw all of that money at the screen and what you get is the shit that sticks, it's it's just a waste. It really it makes me sick because I remember going to see Batman versus Superman. I was really, really lucky. I got to. I went to the premiere in London. I was on the red carpet, and I wasn't in the. I wasn't in the premiere with all the famous people. There was two cinemas, and I was in the press section. And but they'd been on the red carpet, like they were. They'd been there, and we were just going in a different cinema. And the coughing started about halfway through. You know when an audience is bored and everyone just starts to clear their throat, and it becomes infectious. Because I was thinking, why am I not engaged? Why am I not fully here for this? And there was the whole Martha stuff. And I just, Batman was just so angry, inexplicably angry. I think I was angry at it because I was like, if you're a smart man, Batman is a smart man. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have this weird, I must take down the man with superpowers idea. Like I felt like it was completely misguided um, just so that Zack Snyder could have his explosions and have them fight. You know, and have him train up by hitting a tire with a sledgehammer. So I didn't think any of it was intelligent enough for these characters to be driven that way. And I think that's what Nolan did so well, was he made those, especially those first two movies, feel intelligent. They made you feel smart, like you were watching The Wire. And Snyder's movies don't do that. They make you feel thick because you don't understand why any of those characters are doing those things. And he's like, I'm the intelligent... No, you're not the intelligent one. You've made very intelligent characters do terrible, unpredictable things that that character set wouldn't do. Yes, that's my <laughs> my rant. Sorry. No, 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 no. no. So I, I find um, I find myself wanting to like Batman vs Superman more than I do. I want, I, I ache to find it a good film because individual moments grab me, and I, so I will sit down and watch the four hours because I'm genuinely curious because. So at, at university, we studied Paul Schrader. Uh, I did film, we studied Paul Schrader. And so we covered Exodus, the beginning, which he directed. And then the studio hated his version. So got Rennie Harlan in to do another version. And we watched both one after the other. And uh, Paul Schrader's is quiet and somber and thoughtful and very boring. And Rennie Harlan's is everything that's wrong with that period of horror. It's 
CGIE and there's jump scares and uh, plot doesn't really make a lot of sense and it's a bit dark. And at the end of it, the conclusion was neither version worked. And so right now I have to assume that that's the thing with the Zack Snyder version of Justice League is that it will be remarkably different from the version we got in cinemas, but it won't necessarily fix what's wrong with Snyder's version. And and I'm, I guess part of the problem is that this is the first time we've had Batman on the screen uh, in a film surrounded by gods and monsters and beings from other planets. And, and he really doesn't fit for me in, on, in the cinema in that version. And there's a bit in Justice League where I swear he turns up to a scene out of breath. When everyone else has turned up, I swear he slinks in about two minutes into the scene and he looks out of breath. And that, for me, sums up yep. how I think about this Batman. And I shouldn't have to have all this effort to want to like a film. So that's so I, I'm curious of the Snyder Cut because of the story around the Snyder Cut. But it doesn't mean that I think it will be my Batman anytime soon. I think what's interesting as well about the idea of the Snyder Cut is that exactly what you're saying about it will be his, but someone, I was reading a piece that um, talked about some very emotional scenes in it because Zack Snyder has been through emotion, clearly had horrible family tragedy and been through emotional moments of grief, really horrific ones, it's unimaginable. Um, But it then cuts to the death and destruction on a on a wide scale before standing at a grave again and those are two tonal disconnects that i don't think can fit in a in his movies in which he has just kind of bashed stuff around a lot so i think that he's pro- i think he's probably aiming for emotional gravitas and greatness and that's not to dismiss the emotional moments that he adds but it just doesn't it's the it's the wrong jigsaw and the wrong missing piece it just doesn't it just doesn't fit into this world of batman and i think you're really it's a really interesting point about him being so human that he turned up out of breath when that is not who our batman should be it's too much effort for me to try and like these films and to ignore the stuff i don't like um and it's not the end for batman batman will always go on so we've got probably a f- a version of The Flash with Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck back. There's a Suicide Squad spin-off. We haven't even talked about Suicide Squad and Birds of Prey, but they exist. There's spin-offs of <laughs> the villains' stories. And uh, obviously, next we've got Robert Patterson, who will be taking on the mantle. And they're just going to reboot it all again and go back and do a new version. Uh, how do you feel about all those various plans they've got in place, these films? I am tentatively excited about Robert Pattinson's Batman simply because Robert Pattinson has been making really interesting choices in terms of performances like he did The Lighthouse he's done some very different things I think he spent a long time trying to remove Twilight from his CV which is a shame um, that he feels like he should have to but um, so I am quite intrigued by his Batman I'm intrigued by that really brilliant brooding image because he's just made out of jawline isn't he he's just made out of jawline and um they were shooting it in Glasgow last year. So I'm now, I will definitely, I mean, I will definitely see it because it's Batman, but I'll doubly see it because they shot it in Glasgow and I want to see what everything looks like. 
and is the bike looks cool it all looks cool actually i'm 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 ready to see something that's not the snyder batman because i'd like to see someone else do it properly because it's possible to do it properly as we're about to discuss and talking about the games yeah i'm i have to temper my excitement with the new batman because i don't know when it's coming out and so i watched the trailer that came out and i had to stop myself feeling too excited because they put out a trailer that looks incredible that sets up this wonderfully brooding world there's a paul dano riddler running around and it, it looks interesting and it looks like they have spent time to consider what we want from a batman but yeah i'm that's and as you say rob patterson has done some wonderfully strange performances the lighthouse is one of the most effective representations of lockdown i've ever seen and i saw it before we were in lockdown so yes yeah and good time he's great in that i I saw it during actually (laughs) (laughs) i mean i yeah i can't recommend it to people because it's very intense like it's like uncut gems i saw around the same time and i'd love to tell people to go watch that but i can't be like go watch this two and a half hour really intense film that will leave you very stressed it's yeah Shall we, as you mentioned, then bring up the games? It's over, Joker. Over? Why, my dear delusional Dark Knight. It hasn't even begun. So, whilst all this various film iterations have been going on, there's been a series of games that have been, uh, shall we say, massive hits. Uh, So these, there's across three games, four if you count Arkham Origins, beginning with Arkham Asylum, in 2009 and working to Arkham Knight in 2015. Uh, Rock City chronicled the battle between Batman and Joker that stretched across these games and beyond death. Uh, yeah, uh, so I, I have great fondness for these games. Uh, what do you think of these games as the as the gaming journalist? What are your thoughts on these? Oh, these are perfect. Well, other than I don't love Knight, but we'll get into that in a minute. But Arkham Asylum is one of the most perfect games of the 21st century. But it's much more linear. But Batman journeying through Arkham Asylum, which is almost like a delicious funhouse of villains, because you know it's going to have all the villains you want to see in it, all wrapped up in this brilliant narrative around the Joker. So I think there's... And it's... I can't even begin to talk about like the satisfaction of feeling like Batman for the first time. I think it's that wish fulfillment, isn't it? The first time that you that you perform an inverted takedown from a gargoyle. You know, the first time you use your grapple hook to transfer from gargoyle to gargoyle. And the fact that Rocksteady constantly up the ante with the types of villains that even the types of goons that you take on, you know, crawling around in vents and the slow, the incredible, and I think that this is the thing that, that even makes Arkham Knight particularly satisfying is the incredible combat. I mean, nothing feels like Rocksteady's combat. Like they have guarded this combat secret, and while plenty of other games, superhero games especially, like Marvel Spider Man um, on PS5 last year, does a dodge and a hit, it doesn't quite nail it in that flowing, smooth, let's smash up some Jaws way that Batman feels. And that was back in 2009. You know, we that Rocksteady's combat thinking then was completely, I mean, far, far ahead of its time, really, with think about it, because we've never really had anything quite like it since. As you say, the, first of the experience of being um, Batman is is incredible. It's really fun to be have the weight and impact that batman has that they get that so well and also 
in the first one it's nestled in this incredible stealth game so you're this impactful character that's sneaking around taking out people it's it's a lot of fun and then grafted into that is the world they build particularly with the inclusion of the villains so they obviously it's mark hamill's joke and we haven't talked about mark hamill's joker but uh, as much as i love jack nicholson and heath ledger my joker is always going to be mark hamill because his voice is just is is in my brain as who the joker is and and so they use him really effectively in all the games and then they do choices with the other characters so they in the second one they bring in penguin and penguin is a cockney uh gangster and, and it, it makes it work and, and so that i i i think it graphs a great mechanics to play but also a world around it that i find really interesting and engaging and they make choices and i'm glad they make choices and it's fun yeah they make really yeah it is fun it's really fun and they those choices they make are bold narrative choices and interesting you know the talking about i mean even in the first one the breaking of the fourth wall is is unbelievable the idea that you think your playstation has broken but actually your mind is being melted by a villain i mean no one's done that since hideo kojima where like someone's gonna you know psychomantis can read your brain if you just put your controller down so it can vibrate across the floor i mean that kind of i genuinely thought my playstation was broken when i played that for the first time it was unbelievable and i think that adding that kind of thing in effortlessly i mean also, just skipping over City for a second, which I love because it really opens things up and makes it so sandboxy in a really rich way. One thing they added, there was a real jump scare in Arkham Knight, which I think might be the best jump scare that I've ever played, which is when you're grappling through the city. Everything's great. You're flying, you're gliding, you're flying, you're gliding. And then Man Bat comes over the top of a parapet and screams at you. And I threw my controller Russell, I threw it. I threw it across the room and I shouted, Jesus, fuck. And I literally, it was gone. Because it was, it's the cleverest use of it. They know how you're playing your, their game. They know how you will play it and they know how your brain works. And Rocksteady is very, very clever at subverting the idea of you're playing a sandbox, but then they'll gently nudge you. They'll prod you and they say, you, we know you're playing this way. We know you are, and this is Gotham, and we're going to play with you. And I, I love that about these games. There's just some some of the most memorable set pieces from the last twenty years live in the Batman games. Yeah, and and you, your point on the Man Bat is also something else. Rock City do is while most of these games are, are fairly linear, they have all these uh, side missions and quests, and you can go off and fight these incredible villains and. You can also, definitely in Arkham Asylum, there's all these stories around you to go off and find and discover the stories hidden in the walls of this setting. And my personal preference in playing a game is to have a fairly linear story and then to have stuff around it. And that's why particularly Arkham City and Asylum work for me is because I kind of want a little bit of hand-holding whilst I go through a story. So you're not as big a fan of Arkham Knight. And what is it about Arkham Knight that doesn't quite I think work for you? I think the problem is the fact that or, or, um, the fact that Arkham Asylum and City are such strong games across the board. I mean, they're 10 out of 10. They're perfect. And the most exciting thing about Night was obviously that they brought in the Batmobile. Now, the Batmobile is an exciting prospect. And there are 
there are moments in night where you use the Batmobile where you fire out of it and you jump into it and you screech and you hit goons with it. But I feel like they really forced you to use it in the game in very strange ways a lot of the time. I felt like, use the cars. I don't want to use the car. Don't make me use the car. You've given me all these tools in the first two games to use the car. They also, and I think they, they made a road for their own back in the fact that they made such a big deal about twists and plot. And I'm not going to spoil anything here, but the plot wasn't as twisty as they thought it was, except the second ending. The second ending is much better, but the the sort of the story that you go through, it didn't blow me away in the same way that the others did. You know, I think narratively and totally wasted Catwoman as well. You know, she, she spent the entire game fastened to a chair, and that's no way to treat Catwoman, really. And that's that to me. I mean, after the the fun of playing as Catwoman in the second game, being strapped to a chair and just having to do races to get her out is weak. And I didn't expect I didn't expect that to be. So I think that's because I also you know I spent hours in that game. I spent a long long time in that game. I did all of the bombs. I did every single thing with that car because I didn't want to leave that world because it has it feels like Gotham, and I think it's still an incredible achievement. It feels like Gotham and it, it, in the story, it's amazing. But I think there are just too many elements of it that aren't that aren't quite what I wanted it to be, which is maybe an expectation-based thing. I mean, uh, it's it's also the similar thing that we have with um, Nolan's trilogy Capo in that it's just not as good as what has come before. It's just not as good. It's not quite as compelling. Um and I, so I currently am replaying Arkham Knight and I pick it up and I play it for an hour or two and it's 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 it is still fun to be Batman. It's still fun to beat up people. Yeah. I try and not use the car because I just I don't click with the car. I it's as a tank, it's frustrating because I don't really want to play a tank simulation and take out drones. Uh as a car, it's it's not the most enjoyable thing that I want to do. But uh, it also seems to have slightly less personality for me maybe it's because i find scarecrow less compelling it or the arkham knight in himself is is kind of more bland than the joker essentially who is the key figure in the first two he he comes into the third one but for a the first act he's not in this he's not in the third one and it's very noticeable that it feels like an energy drop almost that they need that kind of figure like calling you on the phone and and saying where are you and all this stuff like because Arkham City is is tremendous fun and taking the mechanics of Arkham Asylum then graphing them onto a a limited sandbox that that contains you in this area of Arkham but you can go where you want you can suit where you want you can go into these different buildings and yeah uh, City is 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 masterful for me yeah City's a real sandbox masterpiece. It's a, like, when I, mean, I think about it, I love the the crimes and stuff that you go and investigate. And yeah, it's a, it's a real cracker. One thing that I really liked, um, did you play the Sony Batman VR game? The Rock uh, City I, one. I played it for about half an hour and I, I almost, if I'm honest, threw up when I was going down the lift. Because ah. when you go down the lift okay. and, yes. and it was very disorientating because uh, VR is... is yeah. I, I find that that particular one didn't bother me at, weirdly because it was static. 
um they they sort of dealt well with static but what i found as you progress through that is you fr- you don't realize how scary rocksteady's gotham is until you're standing in it as a human until you're standing in it and you see its size and you see its villains in front of you batman feels like a still feels like an action game but see when you're in it in it you feel like a horror game in it it's genuinely horrific even if you've got batarangs on your belt and which is great you still it still feels really scary and really horrible and one of my friends actually banged their head off the wall because they reacted so badly to one sequence in it that they jerked their head and um but it, it genuinely that for me was a really interesting addition to rocksteady's batman world because it reminded me exactly how scary it can be because it's it's dark and nasty and there's things out there uh, will you be playing so rocksteady are doing a suicide squad game and then i don't know who's making it but there's going to be a sidekick story called gotham knight coming are you gonna play either of those or are they not are you sort of done with the world of batman and rocksteady so so i think that's warner montreal isn't it that's making um that's making the gotham knights which i'm which i'm into because it looks fun it looks it's got batgirl in it looking great um and it's like an rpg as well so you can choose between the four heroes you can stick to one you can switch between them but i just want to play the whole game as batgirl because that was one thing arkham knight released batgirl dlc which was on like a little amusement park and it was just it took an hour and a half max i just want to play the whole game as batgirl i just want to just give me gotham as batgirl which is what this does and it looks you know i saw there was like a it was like a 20 minute gameplay teaser of it so i'll definitely be playing that because it's meant to be this year and by the time the Suicide Squad game comes, I will be very excited for it. But that trailer looked incredible, but it wasn't even for a game. Like, you couldn't see game in it. So I'll be interested to see what that game is, because it's, what, six... It'll be seven years in the making by the time it comes out, which is a really long time if you think about the fact that the other three... Seven or eight years. They all came out in a a six-year period, so... Yeah. So we, so even if Arkham Asylum took three years, yeah, still it's... three games in nine years, and we've had one game in seven. So yeah. this will be interesting. Uh, this has been uh, so much fun to chat to you about Batman. Oh, I think we could talk for ages about Batman. We've not even discussed Lego yes. Batman and all these various other versions that exist. Oh. But I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you my questions about some of the films you like. So my first one is, what is your favorite okay. family film? Paddington Two. Don't even have to think about it. It's always Paddington 2. It is lovely and wholesome, and I think it's probably perfect. So, yeah, Paddington 2. What is your favourite Batman film? Who is your Batman that you go to? Do you know what? Do you know what? I'm going to say it's Val Kilmer in Batman Forever. (laughs) That's it. That's doing it. I'm standing up for him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm standing up for him. My next question is, what is the most inappropriate film you watched growing up? So what is the film you look back and go, maybe shouldn't have watched that growing up? Do you know, I we were talking about The Witches earlier and I was shown The Witches at school. You know, when they used to wheel in a big video, a big television with a video VHS underneath it. And I was in primary three, which I think means I was about six at most. And our teacher, Mrs. Kerr, put on the witches and we were all in bits we were screaming you know taking the mask off it's genuinely i think it genuinely scarred me 
we were all we compl- I think I think some parents complained. I don't think my parents complained, but some parents definitely complained. So that was shown to me far far too young, and I had a really vivid imagination. So I think I had nightmares about it for months, <laughs> and obviously became the human that I am today. And I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> so I I have a four year old, and uh, there are certain films I'll show her. So I've shown her Jurassic Park a couple of times, and. Mm-hmm always check that she's fine when the hunter's having his face eaten because it's like seven seconds long and it always feels longer than I remember. Um, but something like The Witches will... It's probably going to go on the shelf with Jaws in terms of... Yep. Um, I'll probably just wait until she's like 10 or something and then go, that's... yeah, these films that terrified me, watch them. I think that's safe. I think that's a really safe time. Double figures. <laughs> yeah. Double figures are when to show The Witches. It's too confusing. It's just, it's just the first half is, is very intense, and it's all about uh, old women trying to kill small children, and and just the painting story at the start is just terrifying, just utterly terrifying. Ugh. From the director of Don't Look Now as well, yeah, which is just, who said to him, who was like, yeah, let's get him to make The Witches. That's I just I want to be there for the conversation. We're like, well, this great film, Don't Look Now. We can do that, but for kids. <laughs> and it's not a film question. It's because it, you, because you're a game journalist. What is your favorite ge- game ever? Um, I'm go- I, every time someone asks me, I, I say Assassin's Creed too because, as I said before, it. it it re-taught me how much I could love games and what games could do. And since then, I've just been... I've not been able to stop playing any games, really. But can I have a couple? I mean, usually I would put the Batman games into that. And also, one thing... Lovely, wholesome game alert. I mean, last year, I think I spent 800 hours playing Animal Crossing. And I don't think any game has ever been as, you know, mentally supportive as animal crossing for me because i i obviously i've i used to live in england um a lot of my friends are in england i haven't seen them for a year now but i have been on their islands and taken pictures with them and had adventures with them and fished and caught bugs and shown them new clothes that i got in the shop and just spent time in there so i think i think that's been a really important lockdown game for me is animal crossing as silly as that sounds i think that's probably going to have to be high up there because it's been so mentally supportive and helpful and also elijah wood came to my animal crossing island russell amazing oh my god <laughs> came to sell his turnips came to sell his turnips on my island i literally text my mom i was like oh my god there's a hobbit on my animal crossing island she's like i have no idea what you're talking about but i'm very pleased for you <laughs> Oh, that's so yes games are wonderful games are wonderful and i mean you're allowed wholesome games one of the games that got me through the last couple of well last year in fact was the untitled goose game because i just enjoyed spending oh. 20 minutes tormenting people as a goose and it was delightfully wholesome it was, it was yeah it was a beautiful game so wholesome games are good they don't all have to be um hacky slashy just violent teeth, teeth dissolving yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. They can, they can be uh, nice games. In terms of Assassin's Creed, is there a game that you think is technically more enjoyable than two, or is two is just there because it was your entry point? It was the one that you fell in love with. Yeah, so I love, um, 
I love too. It sits in its own place and Ezio has a very special place in my heart. As you can actually see from my Assassin's Creed hoodie that I'm wearing today. But um, I love how the, the, the series changed. Obviously, it went from being typical Assassins to very much an action RPG, which started off with Origins and it was really, really embraced by Odyssey. And now Valhalla, which actually I think might be my new favourite because of the way it fuses together the idea of the sort of old assassin, so you've got a hidden blade back, which you didn't have in Odyssey because you had a magical spear there, which was great. But one thing that I find really important, and I, I'm hoping it's going to change, is the fact that, yes, I've really enjoyed playing guy assassins for a long time, and I've had the choice to play a woman, um, but I'd really, really like to see a lone woman protagonist um, in Assassin's Creed. I think that's something that I really want now because I've played Eivor, I've played Cassandra, but there's always been the choice. And it's not that I don't want to play any more Ezio's, but I've played a lot of dudes in hoods, you know? So I think that series has really evolved. And yes, I've played as Aveline. And yes, she had her own one, but it was for a handheld spin-off. It's not main flagship entry in the series. So I love the way that series is going. And I really hope that they... I don't think they will now that they're doing the choice aspects and the way the animus is going, but I'd really like them to take an interesting sort of leap of faith quite literally so i have hopes for even better assassin's creed but i love them all and valhalla let me throw more axes more axes and heads just give me more axes uh so this is this has been great where can people go off and find your fabulous work where would you like them to go and listen to stuff or follow you somewhere or read read what you're writing where do you want people to go the best place to find all of my nonsense is twitter so i'm at shiny underscore demon just like the Tenacious D song from Dave Rolf, Shining in the Middle of the Road. So yes, Twitter, shiny underscore demon. Thank you for having me. The hell are you supposed to be? I'm vengeance. Thanks for listening to another episode, not just for kids. I really want to say thank you all for signing up to this it means a lot to me that there'll be people out there who've signed up to hear even more episodes of me warbling on about the films that i love and thanks to the amazing louise for joining us she is a guest i've been excited to have for some time and her work is fabulous from her writing about games through to her appearances on various podcasts to everything she does is is wonderful and you should really seek out all she does if you want to get in touch with us and follow updates, I mean, you have this now. There will be more updates coming through this. But we're also on Twitter and Instagram at Adults2Pod. And our email address is notjustforkidspodcast at gmail.com. And if you're listening lately and you thought you'd like to come on and chat to us about family films, then why not send us an email? I would love to talk to loads of new people about all kinds of family films. If you think there's a family film we've not covered yet that you really want to hear us talk about, Send us an email, let us know, just get in touch with us and we can make plans to cover whichever film you think we should be covering. As well as this episode, you'll find in your feed another Batman-centric episode for you all to enjoy. And then going forward, there'll be a new episode on the Patreon channel at least once a month, if not more. It just depends on what I manage to get out in time. But as ever, thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for signing up to this Patreon channel and we'll see you all very soon.
So what do you think? Does it come in black?